Um, it's interesting that as a culture, we, we are in a pretty divisive time right now. Yeah. And in the Gospel of John, yeah. uh, it's about to start getting a little, well, more than a little. Uh, chapter 7 that we're going to be in today, the division that Jesus brings into that culture is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, we have been living and breathing the last couple of weeks in this um, Supreme Court justice nomination and confirmation now. We've been living and breathing like all these points of view and, and passionate from all sides of what's happening here. And like I know um, my wife used to work for CNN so she was like used to live and breathe news. Now in her life, she just prefers to like stay away from the news. And this week we were talking about this. So I knew like, man, this, this has been a huge topic for people just in like small conversation. And it really is a great picture for us as we turn to John chapter seven, we find people on both sides of Jesus who are very passionate for what they think about him. Mm. And there's really not much of a middle ground I would, I would say maybe even more middle ground today. I don't know if you could say that or not, but either, regardless, you get to John 7, there's, there's really no middle ground. Yeah. You're either saying, yeah, I can see where he's coming from with these claims of messiahship, or yeah, um, this guy's lost his mind. Yeah. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 lets us know kind of where some of the leaders sit, right? Uh, verse 1 says, after this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Right. So now Jesus has set himself up. Uh, Dave, we, we looked at it where he made this proclamation where he equates himself with the Father. So he's claiming to be God. And that's blasphemy in the minds of the Jewish leaders. So he's got to be put to death. He's... He's causing too much trouble. So from 7-1 on, we're gonna, this theme of they're seeking to kill him is going to come up a lot. And it kind of started in chapter 5 where yeah. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And if you remember that story after healing the man and uh, the man not even remembering who he was and then Jesus encountering him again. And then he says, oh yeah, it was Jesus. He's the one who did it. He's the one who told me to work on the Sabbath. The authorities come after him. Not because he's healed a man, but because he worked on the Sabbath. And you're going to see that theme reappear here. Jesus is going to come back and address that. Yeah. And so it all stemmed from there. At that point, they had set their minds against Jesus. They were like, what he's saying is leading people straight, and so we have to kill him. And, and then John gives us this little uh, glimpse into Jesus' life here. Um, we get to hear his brothers. Oh, you know what we forgot to do? Can we, can we put Joel's number on the screen? Yes. We, we used to do this, and we thought we're going we're gonna to bring it back today. If you have questions about John, we're gonna, you're going to text Joel your questions, right? And we yes. reserve the right to not answer any of them, like here, right? But we'll get to it, and we may just stop and answer it in yeah. the middle, okay? But is it on? There we go. Yeah. So, so Joel's getting all of those. Feel free to text me anytime yeah. between the hours of right now and not later, but right now you can. Yes, between the hours of right now, <laughs> right now, not later, not later. I no, I'm, when, no, I'm kidding. Start Text talking. me anytime. Never too late or too early. Yes. So 
his brothers. You got a brother? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is an interesting. Oh, so, sorry, pause that for one second. We already got our first text. Um, uh, uh, really? Yes. Um, well, I have two, we have two things we need to take care of before we go too far. One is somebody's car broke down. If you are willing to hold up your keys, someone will get your keys and help you with your car right now. They, they offered that. Is there somebody who's like sitting here with their key, car broken down? Sorry, we're embarrassing you. There he is. No, okay. Oh, my word. Uh, Robbie, over there, left corner. You're right. Okay. Maybe or maybe not, they'll find you. But uh, second thing is, um, we just ha- we would regret it if we didn't say, how cool is it that Chip Chambers is the homecoming king for UGA, huh? I know you'd be totally embarrassed and would hate that, but... That yeah, was- we, yes, he wouldn't want that attention brought to him. <laughs> we love you, man. <laughs> Uh, brothers, that's the brother kind of thing to do right there. Yeah, it was. Like, you're not getting out of here without getting embarrassed. Without getting embarrassed. No, so Jesus shows up and his brothers basically say to him, hey man, you need to get some better PR. Yeah. We, we heard about this eat my flesh, drink my blood thing, and man, that's, <laughs> not, that's not how you build an audience. Yeah, we like the miracles part of it. We, we want to yeah. see all those big things that you've done. I mean, did you hear about the wedding, like where he turned all that water into wine? That was amazing. They fed 10, 15,000 people with just a happy meal. Isn't that crazy? But really, what's more crazy than that is that the brothers are lecturing Jesus. Yeah. That they come to him and say, here, let us take over. We, we think like we know what's best. You, if you're going to be someone, Jesus, you got to go take your show to Jerusalem. And the text tells us that the brothers had not yet believed in him. So in their minds, they're, they're thinking very fleshly. They're thinking at a physical level what it would look like for Jesus to become king. Like, just like the people after he fed the multitude, the people wanted to come and make him king. And the brothers are in that same mindset. I mean, this is pretty cool. We get to ride his coattails as his half-brothers, you know, to this um, wherever he's going, which is hopefully somewhere very prominent. And Jesus is not going to work that way. No, his response to them in verse 6. So John tells us in 5, his brothers had not believed. Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. Now remember, any time in John where Jesus talks about his time or his hour, he's referring to his death. Now at this point, we're about six months out. Yes, yeah, thereabout, yeah. From because of because it's the feast of booze, we have booths, we yeah. have the timeline there of knowing a little bit of how far we are from Passover, the next Passover, the next Passover, which yeah. will lead to his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. He says the world. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus is saying, the world hates me because I lay bare all the sin in the world. And that's why they hate me. And later on, we're going to learn that if Jesus is going to say, if you follow me, the world's going to hate you too. And so Jesus begins to just feed this idea of division. Um, And then he goes up to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And and this this is a pretty cool event. It's a week long, seven days, and 
uh, it is a celebration and a commemoration of God delivering them out of slavery in Egypt and the fact that they would have to live, they lived in tents in, um, when they were coming out uh, of Egypt. In the wilderness. In the wilderness. And so for seven days, your whole family had to live in a, you made a booth, basically a tent. It's mm-hmm. like National Camping Week, right? <laughs> the whole nation, yeah. really, is in a tent. And part of that ceremony and celebration was for seven days, the priests would go to the Pool of Shalom, they would dip a, a water out, and they would come to the temple, and they would pour the water out, and they would light a lamp. And so uh, the water was supposed to signify God providing water from the rock uh, in Exodus. And we'll get back to the rock probably in a second, but Paul makes reference to that rock in 1 Corinthians. Um, so that's the, that's the celebration and the feast that's going on there. So that, that's what they're commemorating. You've got people, it's National Campout Week, and they're celebrating God's, it, it was really a big festival. Yeah. A lot of celebration involved in it. And so Jesus, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, he went up into the temple and began teaching. Yeah. You skipped over a couple of important verses. Yeah, I know. <laughs> look, at, look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Okay, so they're expecting him to show up. Right now, his reputation has become well enough known, right? I mean, you don't feed 15,000 people and people don't hear about that. So they're looking for him. Where is he? And these are, John uses the designation Jews um, in multiple ways. Sometimes it's for the people at large, all the Jewish peoples, but more times than not, he's speaking of the Jews as in the upper leadership of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, those who really set the tone for the nation of Israel, who made the laws, who carried out the laws, who policed the laws. And they are looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? They're, they're, remember, verse 1, they, told, they want to kill him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. So we have two camps there. One, he's a good man. We believe in what this guy's saying. There's something about him. Remember, Nicodemus said, we, we're pretty sure you're from God. Uh, and, but there's this other camp that says, no, he's leading people astray. And this isn't some, uh, you know, light accusation. You see, if you go back to Deuteronomy 13, it says that a false prophet was to be put to death if they led people astray. It uses very similar language to what uh, is used there when the people say he's leading people astray. What they're saying is, we think he's a false prophet. What he's saying can't be true. He can't be who he's claiming to be. Yeah. Yet for fear of the Jews, fear, for fear of those Sanhedrin members who wanted to kill him, no one spoke openly. So it was kind of like because of all the passion involved. Is this me? I'm messing up my mic. Because of all the passion involved, no one really wanted to put their opinion out there in public. And, and so that, that's the climate, right? There is clear division. And into the middle of that, Jesus walks and uh, begins to teach in the temple. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning? He has never studied. Now, they, 
they know this uh, because they know where he's from. But later they're going to ask where he's from. So the, there's a lot of confusion going on here. So he stands up, begins to teach, and they're like, man, this guy can teach, yeah. right? Uh, he, answered, uh, he answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus, again, making the case that what, I, what I'm saying comes mm-hmm. from the Father. I only say and do what the Father gives me to say and do. So your, your accusations and your questions uh, ultimately bear themselves out by the testimony of the one who sent me, who is the Father. When he says, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me, that's really important because you would have these rabbis who were trained under other rabbis, and they would study writings. In fact, when it says, uh, how is it that this man has learning? How, it, it, the literal translation in verse 14, how is it that this man knows his letters, basically? And it's not saying, uh, how is it that this man knows how to read and write? What it's saying. Um, how dare you. Little mic. It's not, it's not you. <laughs> That's great. It's not you, it's me. Sorry about that mic malfunction. But are you, are you sure? We're about to find out. Yeah, we are. It was me. Mm. I can't tell. Okay. Verse 14. See, yeah, the problem, problem with this for us is if something like that happens, we're like, where? A bird? What? <laughs> it's like we get distracted so easily. You know yes. Um, yes, we do. Verse 14. We're going to focus. How? It's still me. It, that's what I thought. <laughs> Verse 14. He goes into the middle of the feast, right? Yeah. And, and he begins teaching. Oh, I had a point. Go. Oh, okay. I'm lo- okay. How is it that this man has learning who's never studied? How is this man who knows the letters? And what it's referring to is the writings of Moses. He's referring to the writings of Moses. That's what they're saying. How is it that he knows Moses so well? How does it that he knows oh, the, yeah. uh, the Pentateuch so well, those first five books of the Old Testament? And it's because, it's because he is the word. Yeah. Right? Uh, the, I, w- I want you to hear this, that... The people marvel at his teaching, and and this is true for all of us still today. The key to unlocking the scripture is the word, Jesus. The key to unlocking what's what's happening in the Old Testament, what's happening all through the Bible, is understanding who Jesus is. Jesus makes it clear to us when we look through the lens of who he is, we can understand all that happens in the entire Bible. And so... They marvel at this, just like they marveled at Peter and John. You might remember that story in Acts chapter 4, where they're teaching and the people marvel because they say they're uneducated. How could they teach like this? And the verse in Acts chapter 4 goes on to say, well, they realized they had been with Jesus. You see, because they looked at the Old Testament scripture through the lens of Jesus, all of a sudden, the teachings came alive. They weren't just words on a page, but they were alive. This is the word alive among us. 
And, and then he plays the Moses card again, right? He says, um, has not Moses given you the law? Yet, none of you keeps the law. <laughs> none of you. So Jesus is saying to these people, Moses gave you the law, none of you keep it, right? You... Um, you you got to feel the weight of that. Here's a guy, un, unlearned, apparently, who somehow has access to all of this information, and he says, you're not keeping the law. And then he gives them an example of how they're not keeping it, right? I did one work. He, he's here, I think, making reference to the healing at the pool, right? I did one work. You... Moses gave you circumcision, that it's not from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, right? But you have to do it because that law superseded the Sabbath law. And so doing circumcision on the Sabbath wasn't breaking the law technically. So Jesus yeah. throws it back on them and goes, you're not even keeping that law, and you're going to judge me for making a, a whole man well. You are not obeying Moses. I'm the one that's clearly keeping the law. And so he, he just continues to pile on here this idea that he is the word and that he has authority and that he is from God. Yeah, it, and this is a perfect example of why the people marvel at Jesus. Just the way he turns this back around on them. The way that he says, okay, let's take a look at the law. If you want to look at the law, if you say that I, you know, I've broken the law and healing a man, well, let's talk about you for a second. So, I mean, it's amazing how he does that. And so we, we sit back and marvel in the same way that they did at his teaching. And it, and it kind of goes back to seven where he says, the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about them. They're evil. Yeah. So he's, he's basically saying, you're not keeping the law. You're lawbreakers. And, and so... Uh, some of the people, it, isn't this the guy they want to kill? That's verse 25. Verse 25, and here he is speaking openly, and they, they're not saying anything to him. Do they think he's the Christ, or do they really, do they know he's the Messiah? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is speaking openly, and they're not coming after him, and the crowd starts thinking, well, we know where he's from. But when Christ appears, no one will know where he's from. Um, but they're a little confused about actually where he was born. You know, he was born in the city of David, but comes out of Galilee. Yeah. So there's some, a lot of confusion there. Yeah. And Jesus, they, they say um, in verse 31, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, is he going to do more signs than this man has done? Mm -hmm. So people are listening. People are watching. They're They've seen what Jesus has done. They've heard what he said. And they're like, this, this, when the Messiah shows up, this is what he's going to look like. Yeah. And so they've put their hope and their faith in him at this point. And the people, they, you know, according to verse 25, there, there's some people who are starting to say, okay, this might be him. And, and maybe even the Sanhedrin is kind of holding off just because he really is uh, this astonishing in the way that he's speaking and acting. Um, 
And they, they bring up this objection of where he's from, and they're going to bring it up again in the same chapter. And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't answer it outright. He, he could easily just say, no, look, here's the deal. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm from Bethlehem. I was born in Bethlehem. I'm from the house of David. And he could clear up these misconceptions, but he doesn't do that. Look at verse 28. He says, uh, you know me and you know where I come from. So instead of clearing it up, here's what he goes on to say. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. See how he just pushes it back on them. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter. It does matter, but it doesn't matter in this situation where I'm from, physically speaking. It's that the Father has sent me. He's saying where I'm ultimately from is not Bethlehem, but from the Father, from heaven, that God has sent me. And, and he's once again showing us, just like he did with his brothers, when his brothers said, hey, go show yourself off. He says, no, it's not on my timetable. Time and here are the people who are saying, well, show us where you're from. You know, give us the right credentials. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. What you need to know is I'm from heaven. So he always just gives us what we need to know. He doesn't yeah. always answer our questions exactly how we want. It's, it's what he's doing at his level on his timetable. And, and that's how he always operates. Yeah. So the Pharisees hear the crowd muttering these things. And the chief priests, they send officers to arrest him. So they've, we're, in, we're in verse 32 now. So go get him. And uh, Jesus says... Uh, to the crowd, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So, so far in John, every chapter, basically, there's mm-hmm. been some point of confusion, yeah. right? Where Jesus is going to say something, and people are going to go, what? Or, or they're going to go, living, living water, oh, mm-hmm. give me that water to drink. Oh, bread, give me that bread to eat. And so, at, people are dealing on things in a physical level, and Jesus is saying, no, no, I've opened the door to heaven and earth, and so there's no separation between those two things now. So look what's about to happen. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So what does he mean? Yeah, that's it. It's a little. That was the question we wrestled with all week. We, we're still wrestling a little, little bit, bit because it's it's pretty cryptic, and we've got we've got another week to get there fully because he's going to say the same thing in chapter eight. So come back next week for yes, us to give for a the, fuller uh, the full answer. But when he says, "Where I am, you cannot come," he, he's speaking of his death and resurrection. He's he's telling them what's going to happen. He knows the future. Yeah, that's why he's operating only in the way in which he chooses, only on his time frames, right? Because he knows what's going to happen when it needs to go down. Because right before this, we kind of skipped over it there, but in verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, because, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is even choosing when to be arrested, when, when he will go to trial, when he will be killed. But he says, where I am, you cannot come. So the reason, here's, here's what I think. I think the reason that they can't go where he's going is, number one, he's going to the cross. They can't go there. 
But number two, uh, when he ascends to heaven, they cannot go there yet because they have not believed yet. John's gospel is about us believing. And Jesus is saying, unless you believe, unless you drink of the living water, you can't come where I'm going. But the ironic part of all this is when they say, well, what does he mean? They say, you know, is he going to go to the, uh, to, the Greek, uh, to the Greeks and teach the Greek to the Jews who were living among the Greeks? And the ironic part of that is by their very act of killing him in a short time, uh, his message will go to the Greeks. Yeah. And, and so this, the, the confusion just builds into the division, mm-hmm. right? And then on the last day, of the feast. Now remember what I said is going on at the feast. It's a celebration of God delivering them from slavery. One of the things the priests would do, they would, they would take water from the pool and pour it out, right? And it was, a, it, it was a thanksgiving offering to God for providing living, life-giving water in the desert, right? So Jesus stands up and cries out. This isn't a, he's not standing over in the corner. This is like, hey, yo, pay attention. Right. He gets the attention of everyone and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. Now, that's a stunning statement that Jesus makes. In the middle of all this ceremony and all of this celebration, they're pouring out this water. Thank you, God, for giving the water. And it was, it was a, also a look forward to a day when God was going to send the Messiah. And Jesus stands up in the middle of that and says... I am the source of that water. Mm -hmm. Do not be mistaken. You come to me if you want to drink and live. Mm -hmm. Don't go anywhere else but to me. That's that's crazy talk, unless he's really the Messiah. Verse 40. You you got something else? Yeah, let me make a point there, because... Verse 39, John adds in this note. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Just a quick story to illustrate this. All along through the Old Testament, there's an anticipation that one day the Holy Spirit would indwell on all of God's people. So in the Old Testament, you before any time up until you know Jesus' ascension in Acts, where we have the Holy Spirit given as a gift to the church. Before that, right, the, the Holy Spirit would uh, indwell certain people for certain times. But if you go back to Numbers chapter eleven, I think it is, you have a story there of Moses, and and it's uh, Moses. Uh, with the people in the wilderness, the very thing that they're celebrating here at the Feast of Booths, uh, they're celebrating how God provided for them during this time. In that story, the people come to Moses and say, hey, we want meat. We're tired of all this bread. And Moses is like, what in the world? And he says to God, did did I give birth to all these people? (laughs) Do I really have to put up with them anymore? 
And God's anger burns against them. And he says, okay, if you want meat, I'll give you meat. But he says, look, and Moses just says, this is too grave a burden for me to bear. And God says, okay, take 70 people, gather them up, and bring those 70 people to me. And Moses does that. He goes out, he gets 70 people, and God pours out the spirit that's on Moses, his Holy Spirit, on these 70 men so that they can uh, do what Moses has been doing and carry the burden of God's people. Well, when this happens, there's two men who are outside of the tent in which they're gathered. And in these two men receive the spirit and they start prophesying them along with the 70. They know that God's spirit's shown up because they start speaking truth and start speaking his words to everyone who will listen. Well, Joshua, Moses' assistant, hears like what's happening and he sees the two men who are not a part of the 70 and he goes to Moses and he says, what's the deal? You got to stop them. They can't be doing this. They're not one of the 70. And Moses says back to him and replies, um, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put their spirit, his spirit on them. And what's amazing for us as we look back on all of that history is to think it's been done for us. That when we trust in Jesus and believe in him, he promises us his helper, the, the Holy Spirit, who will come and indwell in us. So the very thing that Moses longed for, we get to experience, John says here, that, that this is what Jesus spoke about. When we drink of the living water, he will come and he will fill us. It's this incredible, almost incomprehensible gift that, that he gives us. And, and when they hear this teaching... Some of the people said, this, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ, here comes the hometown thing again. Is Christ to come from Galilee? Mm-hmm. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village of David? So there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one, again, no one laid hands on him. The officers who they sent to arrest him Come back to the chief priest, right? Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed? But but this crowd that does not know the law, look, can can you hear what's going on there? Can this crowd that doesn't know that we know the law, they've been deceived. They're accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before him and was one of them, said, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Ironically, two prophets did come from Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. Mm -hmm. So... They must have skipped class that day. Um, but division has even crept into their ranks, right? Nicodemus says, wait, we can't, without giving him a hearing, we can't condemn him. Yeah. So, so th- this idea, no one ever spoke like this man. Think about some of the things Jesus has said mm. He, he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. I'm going to open heaven and earth, tear down this temple, and I'll build it up in three days unless you're born again. 
You can't see the kingdom. As Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Whoever drinks this water will never thirst. Go, your son will live. Do you want to get well? Get up, take your bed and walk. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you believe Moses, you will believe me. I am, don't be afraid, I am the bread of life. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. No one ever spoke like this man. And even the officers sent to arrest him can't act because how are we going to arrest this guy? If you just look at this chapter, you see the complete authority in which he spoke to his brothers when he said, no, my time's not here yet, with incredible understanding as he taught the people and everyone marveled. You see wisdom and insight as he tells the authorities that no they're the ones actually breaking the law because they're trying to kill him. It's precise insight as he knows the people's objections to his messiahship, yet continually brings them back to the Father. You see some mystery in how he speaks when he tells them that where he's going, they cannot come. But then it's with absolute boldness and authority that he declares that he is the living water and everyone, must, everyone who thirsts must come to him. No one has ever spoken like this man. In contrast, you have the Pharisees who say to Jesus, or who, who say now, have you been deceived? No one else has believed. And it's with a great deal of irony that John writes this and, and frames this story like this to show us that the way they speak is actually untruthful, mm. that they've been deceived because some have believed. In fact, one among them, Nicodemus, has started to believe. This doubter who couldn't quite grasp everything that Jesus was teaching him in John chapter 3 is now at a point where they're saying, he's saying, hold on, let's hear this man out. I think there's something here. And so we're forced to reckon with, here's this camp over here who thinks Jesus is leading people astray when in fact they're the ones leading people astray. And then there's this camp that says, no, I think he is who he says he is. I think he's worth believing in. And, and that's the decision before us. When, when he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Think about this. If you're thirsty, come to me. I, I will give you drink. He says to the Samaritan woman, I, I'll give you water. You'll never be thirsty again. There is a moment in the life of Jesus I want to close with this. In 19, chapter 19, you don't have to turn there. I want you to hear this. Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. The one who is living water is thirsty. Physical thirst, yes, but also there's that spiritual thirst of separation because the Father has laid on him the sin of all of us. That, that dying spiritual thirst where you know you're separated from God is on Jesus at this moment. And when he says, I thirst, the one who gives living water is given bitter vinegar to drink. 
Jesus drinks that so you and I don't have to. So, so today the offer is that. Thirsty. There's only one source. Jesus. Come to Him and drink. Let me pray for us.